Well, good morning and thanks for being here. We are excited that you joined us today, whether you're sitting here in the sanctuary or if you're joining us from online. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And this is our second to last sermon in a series that we've been calling Signs. And now Signs is all about how sometimes when we read about the miracles of Jesus in the Bible, they can seem strange, maybe even fantastical. And it's easy for us to skip over these miraculous things and focus on other parts of the story that fit more cleanly into our modern sensibilities. Well, in this series, we've been looking at these miracles of Jesus as found in the book of John, and we've been talking about how we can be rational, scientifically-minded people and still believe these miracles literally happened. But even more than that, each of these major miracles in the book of John serves to show us something about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And so far in the book of John, we have talked about six miracles that Jesus has done. He turned water into wine. He healed the royal official's son. He healed the paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda. He then fed thousands of people using only a couple of fish and a few pieces of bread. He walked on water. And then last week, he took the man who was born blind and gave him sight. Now, I've mentioned this before, but I think the book of John is a verifiable masterpiece of writing because each of these miracles are used by the author to create a case for who Jesus is. In fact, in John chapter 20, uh, John says this about these miracles. He says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's the point. Each of the miracles in the book of John are supposed to make it more and more clear for us who Jesus is. I like to imagine a couple of like first century bros, they're hanging out in the tavern after a long day in the local olive grove, and they're sitting around talking about Jesus, and the first guy says, did you hear about Jesus? I heard he turned water into wine. And the second guy goes, ah, they probably just found extra wine in the storehouse basement. So the first guy says, well, what about that time he healed the official son? And the second guy goes, that official son was probably already getting better by the time the official got to Jesus. And then he says, well, what about that guy who hadn't walked in 38 years and Jesus healed him? How do you explain that one? And the next guy says, well, that one's a little harder, but I bet there is an explanation somewhere. So the first guy then says again, well, how about the crowd of thousands that Jesus fed using only a a few fish and a couple pieces of bread? And the second guy goes, yeah, I heard about that one. And what about the time he walked on water? I'm not sure I can explain that one to you. And then finally, what about the time he raised Lazarus from the dead? Each of the miracles in the book of John, they get increasingly harder to explain unless Jesus is exactly who he says he is. And with this seventh major miracle that we're looking at today, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, John is cementing his argument. And he's going to show us, on one hand, Jesus is divine. He's the Son of God. And that means that it is through him that we have true and eternal life. But before we dig into that, let's just take a second and pray together. God, we're thankful for this chance to look at your word 
and to talk about how you're the giver of life. Lord, we want to praise you for some things you've done this week. We praise you for getting Kari Idnes through surgery and back at home where she's recovering. Lord, we do have some requests that we want to lift to you too. We think of all the people this week that have um, surgeries and doctor's appointments that they're uh, worried about. God, we ask that you use doctors in calm minds so that uh, people can be brought to better health. Lord, we're praying that we're open to your message today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this is John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It reads, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, let us go that we may die also with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask for. Like I said, the Apostle John is building a case for who Jesus is. And by the way all of the characters respond to Jesus in this story, it's clear that even though they've seen Jesus do some crazy stuff, and even though they're beginning to understand who Jesus is, it seems like they still don't quite grasp the enormity of who Jesus is. I mean, think about that interaction between Jesus and his disciples that we just read. He said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. And then a few verses later, after he said this, he went on to tell them, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. 
Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said, Let us also go that we may die with him. We've said this a bunch of times in the series, but the disciples of Jesus, they had started to understand part of the truth of who Jesus was. They believed that he was the one sent by God to save God's people, but their understanding of how this was going to happen wasn't quite right. They thought that Jesus was going to be propped up as king over Israel and that he would lead the people to rid themselves from the oppressive hands of the Roman Empire. So it then makes sense why the disciples are always so afraid of the threats of death they seem to keep getting. If Jesus dies, there goes their hopes at being saved from the Romans. If Jesus dies, there goes their hopes at being anything other than misfits and rejects. And if they die, well, same results. So when Jesus says to them, hey, we're going to go to Judea to see Lazarus, the disciples, they are not pleased. You see, not too long before this takes place, Jesus and his band of Mary followers had been in Judea, and the religious leaders there had just tried to stone them to death. They literally picked up stones and were ready to throw them at them until they died. So Jesus and his disciples, they hightailed it out of Judea to a more remote region of Israel where they would be safer. The disciples, they did not want to go back to Judea. They were like, Jesus, man, we were just there and they tried to kill us. If we go back there, they're going to do us in. It could be the end of us. And if you die, Jesus, there goes everything we've been working towards. In their minds, heading back to Judea held the potential for the one thing that could derail everything they were working for, death. So Jesus, knowing why they're all worked up, he says, our friend Lazarus, he's asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. To which the disciples, keeping with their desire to not go back to Judea, respond, that's great news, Lord. If he sleeps, he's going to get better. We don't need to go. But Jesus didn't mean that Lazarus was taking a much-needed nap. So he tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. And I love this next part. Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You can probably read this a few different ways, but I definitely see it as a temper tantrum from Thomas. Fine, whatever, Jesus. I guess we'll just head on over there and die with Lazarus. There is no arguing with you, is there, Jesus? I love this, because can, can you imagine how the disciples would have felt about some of the stuff they said to Jesus when they finally realized that he's the all-powerful creator of the universe? My guess is Thomas was probably like, stupid me, I can't believe I said all that stuff to him. But here's the main point I want you to see. The disciples they were still a bit confused about who Jesus really was. They see him as a savior. They see him as being sent from God. But I don't think they see him as God yet. Because for them, death still looms as something that has the power to derail all of their hopes. And check out what happens with Martha. We see a really common theme. Jesus and his disciples, they walk the two-day journey to Judea, and they finally get to Mary and Martha's house, where they find that Lazarus has been dead for four days. Martha, she comes out to meet Jesus, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, 
my brother would not have died. There's a common theme. Martha thinks of Jesus as having tremendous power. She thinks he could have kept her brother from dying, but Lazarus is dead now, and she feels like there's nothing for Jesus to do. She thinks that the only one who can do something at this point is God, so she says, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. This is such an interesting statement. She recognizes that Jesus might have been able to do something if he had gotten there sooner. But now, in her mind, the only hope is if Jesus could ask God to do something about it. In Martha's mind, God can do something about the death of her brother, and he usually gives Jesus what he asks for. So who does Martha think that Jesus is? Just a powerful prophet? Just a human savior? just a conduit to God the Father? It's clear she thinks that he was powerful enough to keep Lazarus from dying and that he had a direct connection with God the Father, but it doesn't look like she thinks Jesus is God. Now, all these people who are followers of Jesus um, think a lot of Jesus, but it's clear they don't quite understand who he really is and what he has the power to do. When I was a kid, my sister and I would do puzzles at my grandparents' house. Now, interesting fact about myself, I'm a little bit colorblind, and if you ask my wife, I'm actually a lot of bit colorblind, and so puzzling is not my best skill. But at my grandparents' house, my sister and I, we would sit in their basement and try and build puzzles, and there was one puzzle they had that was the puzzle to beat all puzzles. It was a massive three-dimensional castle. This was no flat picture of a garden. It was humongous. It stood up. It had corners on corners on corners. So my sister and I, we went down in the basement and started working on this massive puzzle. And it wasn't too long into it that we were just absolutely stumped. Hardest puzzle imaginable. It was impossible. And so my grandma, she came downstairs probably because she heard us complaining about this ridiculously impossible puzzle, and she said, hey, maybe you should ask your grandpa to help out. Now, we knew my grandpa was good at puzzles. In fact, he was the best puzzler we knew. In all of our time with him, he had never come across a puzzle that he could not put together. But this puzzle, this massive 3D castle puzzle, it was so hard that in our minds, We thought no one, not even the best puzzler we knew, could solve it. So we said to my grandma, what's he going to do? This puzzle is impossible. No one can solve it. Now, like I said, my grandpa was the best puzzler we knew. But in light of the impossibility of that 3D castle, we thought to ourselves, no, this is even beyond him. Well, a couple of days later, we came back to my grandparents' house, and sure enough, My grandpa had built that puzzle, and my sister and I, we were in utter shock and disbelief. We didn't think he could do it. This is kind of how Martha and the other disciples were viewing Jesus. He might have been the best they had ever seen. He might have fed the hungry, healed the sick, taught like no one they had ever heard. Shoot, he might even be the Messiah. But this is 
death we're talking about. There's no way Jesus could do anything about that. It's so final. It's so overwhelming. It's the one thing no one has any power over. The disciples may have been starting to understand who Jesus was, but at this point, they felt like death was something that was even beyond his ability. They thought that death was beyond the scope of Jesus' power. But Jesus, he was not going to let them hold on to this view of him. Check out what happens next. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is an incredibly important part of this story. We've got Martha. She's crushed. Her brother has just died. This is no doubt one of the hardest and worst times of her life. And Jesus tells her, your brother, he'll rise again. And Martha thinks that Jesus is probably just offering her the type of thing that she's heard a thousand times from her believing friends. You'll see him again. On the last day, he will rise and so will you. So she tells Jesus, I know, he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Now Jesus, he's the master of guiding conversations. So he offers Martha this and she takes the bait and she doesn't realize it, but Jesus is setting her up for the most important realization she's ever going to make about him. You see, Martha, she's actually doing something really good here. She's taking what she knows is good and true theology and she's leaning into it for hope in hard times. She says, I know, I will see Lazarus again when the last day comes and brings with it the resurrection of humanity. She's got this theological understanding that at some point in the future, the world as we know it will end and everyone will be raised from the dead and judged before God. And those who are part of God's people will go with him and those who aren't won't. So she says, I know I'll see him again. At that point, at the resurrection, when we all receive life, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. If Jesus had had a microphone, he would have reached his arm out and dropped it. This is like the pivotal statement. This sums up all of the major things that have happened thus far in the book of John. I mean, think about it. Jesus has shown that in so many ways, he is the giver of life. He gave life to water by turning it into wine. He gave physical life by healing a dying boy. He gave a new life to the paralytic by making him walk. He gave new life to the blind man by giving him sight and proving that his blindness wasn't from sin. He gives nourishment and life by feeding people. He's been the giver of spiritual life through his teachings. All of the book of John to this point has been pointing to the fact that Jesus is the giver of life. 
And now, when presented with the opposite of life and confronting the doubt his followers have in his ability to beat death, Jesus says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me lives. Even if they die, they live. He's saying, Martha, you've seen over and over again how I give life. Don't you see that the life I give to my followers is the indestructible life that you think comes in the future with the resurrection? I am the resurrection. My followers get to have that life through me. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Jesus is saying to her, yes, death looks like it cannot be beaten. But let me tell you something. I am life, and I give the type of life that death cannot beat. Anyone who believes in me will live. Church, please hear what Jesus is saying. The type of life that comes from believing in Jesus is unlike anything else. In good times it fills you, in bad times it fills you, and death cannot beat it. Jesus is life, and he gives eternal life to those who believe in him. What happens next is amazing. This is verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. It says that when Jesus saw the people were weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And that Greek word that we translate as deeply moved, it's the word enebrimesito. And this is a really hard word to translate into English, which is why we use the rather vague deeply moved. But that word enebrimesito, it carries the sense of like being outraged or angered. We find that word in Greek, non-biblical Greek literature to often refer to the snort of a war horse as its adrenaline-filled body rushes into the fray of battle. And when we see that word enebrimesito used in other gospel accounts of Jesus' life, it's always used to convey an attitude of scolding or scorn. The nuance of the word is that it does refer to being deeply moved, but deeply moved out of frustration and anger. New Testament scholar Gary Burge, he describes it this way. He says, the word enebrimesito indicates an outburst of anger. But what arouses Jesus' anger? Why is he outraged in the deepest level of his being? He's certainly not angry at Martha, Mary, or their mourners. Rather, he is overcome by the futility of this sorrowful scene. God's people possess knowledge of life. They should possess a faith that claims victory at the grave. But here they stand, overcome in seeming defeat. And here stands the one in whom victory, life, and resurrection are powerful realities. Jesus is angry at death itself and the devastation it brings. His only interest now is to locate the tomb and begin to demonstrate his divine power over humanity's foe. 
Jesus, he's angry at the fact that death has caused so much pain and has caused his people to miss the fact that he is life. So he weeps, overcome by a very human surge of emotion, and then he does the unthinkable. This is verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved or outraged, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for it's been four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. When we read this, it's easy for us to say, wow, Jesus really cared about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And that is true. He absolutely does. But for that to be our takeaway misses so much of what we've been talking about. I mean, think about it. Jesus, he walks up to the grave and says, move the stone. Mary and Martha are like, no, Jesus, don't open the tomb. He's been in there four days, and by this time, he stinketh. But if you, yeah, it's the King James translation, stinketh. But Jesus, he is angry at death, and he needs his followers to know that he is life and that death does not defeat them that the life he gives is indestructible. So he shouts out, Lazarus, get off your dead behind and come out here. And sure enough, Lazarus comes out back from the dead. Now imagine that you are a person that loves Lazarus like Mary and Martha did. It doesn't matter how much you care about Lazarus. When you see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, you're not thinking about how great it is to have Lazarus back. No, people would have been wide-eyed, knees trembling, looking at Jesus like, holy smokes, I was not expecting that. I had no idea that you were that magnificent, that powerful, that amazing. I had no idea you had power over death. No one's rushing Lazarus here. Lazarus may have just come back from the dead, but he is playing second fiddle to Jesus who just blew everyone's mind and proved that everything he just said about being the one who gives indestructible life is true. The resurrection of Lazarus proves that Jesus has power to give eternal life. He just said, anyone who believes in me shall live even though they might die, and boom, someone who believed in him now lives even though they were dead. Jesus is proving his point. He is life, and he does give eternal life to those who believe in him. So what do we do with this? Well, here's the big takeaway. Jesus is life. He gives eternal life to those who believe. So two points of application. First, if you've been on the fence about whether or not you want to give your life to Jesus, let this miracle show you that putting your faith in Jesus is worth it. 
He gives life, and the life he gives is not beaten by death. So if you've never prayed to accept the life that Jesus gives and to put your faith in him, I invite you to pray along with me right now. Jesus, I know that you give life, and I want life with you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I realize I need you in my life, and I'm sorry for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. And as much as I know how, I want to follow you from now on. Please come into my life and make me a new person inside. I accept your gift of salvation. Show me how to live and help me follow you always. In your name I pray. Amen. If you're watching online or you're here in person and you just made a decision to follow Christ for the first time, let me encourage you to get out that connection card in front of you or go online and fill one out and mark that box that says, I accepted Jesus today so that we can follow up with you and help you make some next steps forward in your faith. For those of you who have been followers of Jesus, though, there is still an important lesson here. You see, Jesus, he walks into one of the hardest moments in Mary and Martha's life. And in it, he claims to be the giver of true life. And by doing this, he is offering them something more than just bringing their brother back. He's offering him to them. He is offering them himself. And so let me encourage you to remember, Jesus is the source of true life. And whether this moment in your life is amazing, or if this moment in your life feels more like what Mary and Martha were going through, the source of true life is Jesus. Lean into that. Prioritize those things that help us experience him, like worship, prayer, scripture, Christian community, and seek to live into the life that he gives us. Let's pray together. God, you are the giver of life. Jesus, we are so thankful for this miracle and what it teaches us. Our prayer today is that we may experience the life you've given to us. Lord, help us remember that death cannot defeat us and that even though we may die, we still have life with you. God, thank you for your salvation. Help us believe it. Help us lean into it. Help us live in light of that. We pray this in your name, for your glory. Amen.